Heavenly Father and Sovereign King of creation, You have planned all things from beginning to end. The world and all that happens in it is under Your continual care and direction. Even the hearts of kings are in Your hand to direct as You will. Indeed, Lord, You are also sovereign in our salvation, choosing us and our children to be in Christ Jesus from before the world began. You sent Your Son into the world to lay His life down for His sheep, and He loses none that You have given Him. Your sovereign Spirit works in us to make us Your willing servants in the day of battle as Your Spirit works in us faith and repentance and perseverance. Rise up today, O Lord, to scatter the enemies of Your people, especially those who shed the blood of Your people. Defend Your church. Bless us. Fill this place with the knowledge of Your glory as You give us Your gifts so that we may worship You, giving You thanks and praise with reverent joy in the beauty of holiness. Amen. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Kinsman Redeemer. Amen. In the first part of Mark's Gospel, there is a major focus on food. Uh, The first half of Mark's Gospel has a lot to do with eating. So, for example, in chapter 6, we have a story in which John the Baptist's head is served up at a dinner party on a platter. Uh, That is followed immediately by a story in which Jesus feeds the multitude. So you have the false feast and... The true feast. What I think is really interesting is that in the first half of Mark's Gospel, there is especially a focus on bread. Uh, The word for bread appears about 20 times in the first eight chapters of Mark's Gospel. Most of those occurrences of the word bread are in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Then bread basically disappears from the story uh, and is replaced by the cup. Bread is prominent in the first part of Mark's Gospel. The theme of the cup then becomes prominent uh, in the second half of Mark's Gospel, uh, beginning in uh, chapter 9. You begin to have several references to the cup. The only place where the word cup appears in the first half of Mark's Gospel is a passing reference to the Pharisees washing their cups. But you have multiple appearances of that word cup in the second half of Mark's Gospel, beginning in chapter 9. Uh, So there's something of a shift uh, in the story from bread to cup. Bread shows up in the second half of the book of Mark only at the Last Supper, uh, where the bread and cup are obviously together. Uh, Now perhaps further along in the future, we will talk about that narrative progression in Mark's Gospel from bread to cup. That's, of course, the sequence in, uh, in the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper as well. We move from bread to cup. But for right now, this morning, I just want you to especially notice this. I want you to notice how frequent the references to bread are in this part of Mark's Gospel, especially in chapters 6, 7, and 8. In these chapters, you have Jesus taking five loaves of bread and multiplying the bread to feed the 5,000. When Jesus walks on water, the disciples uh, don't understand what's going on. They, They miss the point. 
And Mark tells us it's because they did not understand about the bread. They didn't understand what Jesus did with the loaves of bread, and that's why they didn't understand what it meant when He walked on water. The Pharisees travel from Jerusalem to critique Jesus and His disciples for the way they eat their bread. They don't wash their hands before they eat their bread. In the story that we've read today, bread is used metaphorically. Who would take bread from their children in order to give it to dogs? In chapter 8, Jesus again takes loaves of bread. This time, seven loaves of bread. He multiplies the bread, this time to feed 4,000. In chapter 8, as in chapter 6, Jesus asks His disciples, how many loaves of bread do you have? There's this focus on bread. After the feeding miracle in chapter 8, He warns the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Again, leaven has to do with bread. And when it becomes clear that the disciples don't know what He's talking about, He asks, do you not understand about the bread? About the loaves of bread? This whole section in Mark's Gospel is about bread. There is bread everywhere and the disciples don't get it. They don't understand the bread. But here in Mark chapter 7 verses 24 to 30, we find a Gentile woman who does understand the bread. How refreshing is that? Somebody who gets it. Uh, This is really a fun story. Uh, It's a shocking story uh, in a lot of ways. The more we get into the details of this story, the the more we can appreciate the richness of what's going on. So let's look at this. Uh, We're told in verse 24 that Jesus went into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now Mark here is not just giving us a travel log. Uh, He's not telling us these places um, just to fill up space. Uh, These locations are important. There's a kind of history that stands behind uh, these places. They have a a theological significance. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the people of Tyre uh, were Israel's greatest enemies. He's writing in the first century, not long after Jesus. He says the people of Tyre were Israel's greatest enemies. And we can piece together the reasons for that. Uh, Primarily, they have to do, again, with bread. Uh, The region of Tyre was a region well supplied with food, and they would often withhold their food supplies from hungry Jews. Uh, Acts 12.20 refers to Tyre as a country well supplied with bread. So the Tyrians would feast, while many Israelites and nearby areas would go hungry. Uh, Historically, Tyre had been an oppressor of the Israelites for a long, long time. Uh, Tyre is oppressed at, is identified as an oppressor of Israel in several places in the Old Testament prophets, particularly in Ezekiel and in Amos. But it wasn't always that way. Uh, if you go back to the days of King Solomon, uh, King Solomon, the son of David, uh, King Solomon was on good terms with Hiram, the king of Tyre, in their day. In fact, Hiram provided Solomon with materials he needed for building the Lord's house, for building the temple, and Solomon gave to Hiram bread. Read about that in 1 Kings chapter 5. In fact, I would say, I'm getting a little ahead of myself with this, but I would say that relationship that Solomon had with Hiram, that Israel had with Tyre in those days is a kind of hint, a kind of foreshadowing of what this story is all about. Here in Mark 7, we have a story in which another son of David, King David's greater son, 
is going to give bread, at least in a metaphorical way, to a Tyrian. And in return, he will receive materials from Tyre with which to build his house. No, not a literal house of stones and wood, but a living house made of living stones, made of people that will serve as the Lord's dwelling. Uh, so we have that in the background, but there's more. Uh, verse 24 tells us Jesus entered a house in the region of Tyre, uh, hoping no one in this Gentile region would know it so that he and his disciples could get some much-needed rest. Jesus had actually invited his disciples to take a rest back in chapter 6, uh, verse 31, uh, after they returned from their missionary journey. Uh, but alas, even here, they're not going to get a break. Jesus' fame has reached even into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so this woman comes to Jesus, never mind the fact that she invades his privacy, uh, never mind the fact that she is crossing cultural barriers that in that day no one would feel comfortable with her crossing. What Mark wants us to know about this woman is really two things. Two things stand out. One, she is in desperate need because her young daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit. Now, it is interesting, this is identified here as an unclean spirit at the beginning of the story. In the rest of the story, this unclean spirit is called a demon. But I think it's first called an unclean spirit because Mark wants us to link this story with the immediately preceding story, which is all about uncleanness and where uncleanness comes from. And so here, this demonic spirit is called an unclean spirit. That's one thing we need to know about her, her desperate need because of her daughter's condition. The second thing Mark wants us to know is her racial and ethnic and geographic background. Now understand, Mark is telling a very fast-paced story. Mark doesn't give you a lot of details that other gospel writers do. If Mark interrupts the very quick flow of his narrative to pile up these descriptors of this woman's identity, then they must be important to the student. So we have to ask, who is she? Where is she from? What are her racial and cultural credentials? Mark tells us she is a Greek. And this doesn't just mean that she's a Gentile. Obviously, she is a Gentile. But the term Gentile refers to any non-Jew from anywhere. The term Greek is more specific than that. The fact that she's called a Greek tells us that she is part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, of course, succeeded the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander had uh, sought to unify all the lands he had conquered by Hellenizing them, or we could say by Greekifying them. He sought to unify uh, the empire by spreading Greek culture. When the Romans took over, when the Romans became the predominant power, the, the new empire, they furthered that project of seeking to unify the empire culturally. This woman is a part of that. She's a part of the empire. She's a part of what the New Testament calls the Orchamene. Uh, she is part of the Roman Empire. She's part of Roman civilization. She's part of the civilized world. This probably means, even if she's a widow and has a daughter in me this way, probably means she's part of the privileged class. Further, she is identified as a Syrophoenician. That is to say, she is from the Phoenician part of Syria. Uh, we know she's from the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's where Jesus has entered. I think there are a couple of Old Testament stories that provide critical background uh, here. The prophet Elijah once visited this same area 
And he too met a desperate widow. And in that particular story in 1 Kings chapter 17, he provides bread for her. Note that connection. And he raises her only son from the dead. That's Elijah entering into Syrophoenician territory, meets a widow, gives her bread, helps out her child. But Elijah also had dealings with another Syrophoenician woman, another woman from Sidon, uh, Queen Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel was from Sidon. Uh, she married Ahab, the king of Israel. And that marriage actually led to the downfall of Israel. It helped lead to the apostasy of Israel because Jezebel was an idolater. Jezebel was a worshiper of Baal and she introduced Baal worship into Israel. She sought to slaughter the prophets of God, including Elijah himself. Uh, Jezebel had Naboth, an innocent man, murdered just so that she and her husband could take uh, his vineyard, so they could steal his vineyard. And as judgment for all her atrocities, Elijah said that she would die and dogs would come and eat her flesh. By calling this woman a Greek, by identifying her as a Syrophoenician woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon, Mark really makes this into a political story. This is not just a story about Jesus interacting with some random individual off the street. Mark has told this story to us in such a way that this story is going to show us something about the geopolitics of Jesus' kingdom. How will Jesus' kingdom relate to the Roman Empire, the empire of the day? How will His new Israel relate to the ancient enemies of the old Israel? And indeed, if Jezebel is something of an object lesson for Israel, in other words, Jezebel shows the Israelites this is what happens when you consort with the other nations, especially with the Syrophoenicians when you get too close to them then what does that tell us about the scope of Jesus' kingdom project? Is it going to be for all nations or not? And if so, if it is for all nations, people like Syro-Phoenician women, then how is his kingdom going to avoid the kind of compromise and idolatry that Jezebel brought into Israel? See, those are the kind of questions raised here by this background information we're given. To answer those questions, though, we've got to keep going. We've got to keep moving through the story. She comes to Jesus and she makes her request known. Her request, cast the demon out of my daughter. How does Jesus respond? It seems he replies with a, an ethnic insult, a kind of racial slur. He says, let the children be filled first, for it is not good, it's not fitting to take the children's bread and throw it a little dog. How rude. How unkind. How unchristlike. Right? Uh, why isn't Jesus more compassionate, more sensitive to this hurting woman? Why does Jesus do this kind of thing? That's not how we expect Jesus to act. I mean, even if the statement is true in a kind of abstract way, who, after all, in their right mind, would take the bread that belongs to their children and feed the dogs instead? If you have to choose between feeding your children and feeding your dogs, you'll choose your children, right? Jesus is correct in what he said, but it seems so harsh. Well, there are several things here worth noting. Uh, first, obviously, this is a kind of parable, so we have to decode it a bit. Who are the children here and who are the dogs? The children are obviously the Israelites, the covenant people. 
Who are the dogs? The dogs are the Gentiles, those outside the covenant. Dogs uh, were unclean animals under the law. They symbolized the status of people like this Syrophoenician woman, people who are not part of the holy nation of Israel. So you've got sayings like Jesus in Matthew 7, 6, don't take what is holy and throw it to the dogs. Because dogs are unholy. They're unclean. You've got the children. you got the dogs. What about the bread? What's the bread? Well, here the bread must be Jesus Himself. Jesus, the Messiah, and all His benefits. Jesus and the kingdom He's bringing in. The kingdom feast He is inaugurating. And the point then is this. She is excluded because she's not in Israel. Jesus essentially says, why should I minister to you? You're not part of the house of Israel. But there is a ray of hope here for her. There is a ray of hope here for her and for the Gentiles in what Jesus says. Look closely at this. Jesus says, let the children be filled first. In other words, Jesus is subtly indicating there is a kind of order to things, an order to salvation history. First it's for the Jews, then it's for the Gentiles. Gentiles will enter, but they'll enter second. They can't enter before the proper time. And of course, we see this play out in the rest of the New Testament. Again, to get ahead of ourselves a little bit here. When the Apostle Paul goes on his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, where does he go first? Every new town he enters, where does he go first? It's first to the synagogue. And then when he is rejected in the synagogue, then he goes to the Gentiles of the town. He writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So, so long as Israel has this special status as God's chosen nation, the status they have up to 70 A.D., it's first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now it says the Jew first, not the Jew only. And that's a key distinction here. In fact, I think this order really is rooted back in Genesis chapter 12. We read a few verses out of Genesis 12 this morning. Genesis 12 records for us the origin of the Jewish nation in God's call of Abraham. See, God had planned all along to save the whole world. But how will God do it? How will God deliver His blessing to all the nations? By choosing one nation and having a unique relationship with them, the nation of Israel. God will bless Abraham first, but He won't bless Abraham exclusively. Through the blessing bestowed upon Abraham, his blessing will radiate out. It will flow out from Israel to all the nations of the world. Israel is the chosen people, but she hasn't been chosen just for her own good. No, she is chosen for the sake of mission. She's blessed in order to be a blessing. So yes, it's for the Jew first, but it's not for the Jew only. I think in essence, Jesus is saying that by making this request, the woman is jumping the gun. She's getting ahead of things. The time hasn't yet come for the Gentiles to enter the kingdom as Gentiles. First the children have to eat, then the dogs. First the children have to get their fill, then the dogs. But you know, there's something else interesting here, and I know I risk here maybe complicating things too much, but let me just add another layer to this. Another way of thinking about it. Maybe the children already have eaten, in a sense. After all, in the immediately preceding chapter, Jesus fed 5,000 children of Israel. And it says they ate and were filled in Mark chapter 6. The same word is used here for the children getting their fill. 
perhaps the children of Israel have been filled. Let me throw something else out here that's interesting. Remember what we saw last week in the immediately preceding story, a story that has to do with uncleanness and the Jewish dietary laws. In chapter 7, verse 19, we have that, that, that note, that commentary by Mark that Jesus declared all foods clean. And we talked about last week how in so doing, in, in cleansing all foods, he essentially broke down a big chunk of that dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. One of the things that kept Jews and Gentiles apart were the dietary laws. Jesus declared all foods clean. And so now at least a big part of that wall is coming down. But then here just a few verses later in the next story, you've got Jesus in Mark 7.29 calling a Gentile woman a dog. It seems here that there's a there's a tension. It seems that his saying in 727, calling this woman a dog, it seems that would contradict his action in 719 of cleansing all foods. If he's cleansed all foods, why turn around and call this woman a dog? Indeed, if he has subverted the Jew-Gentile distinction by removing dietary barriers, why turn around and reinforce those barriers here? by referring to her in terms of an unclean animal. Yes, we want to say, make up your mind, Jesus. Are you transcending those boundaries or not? Have you come to do away with the Jew-Gentile distinction or not? Why does it look like in one story Jesus is subverting the Jew-Gentile distinction and in the next story reinforcing it? Why does He seem here to suddenly revert back to a kind of Jewish nationalism, a kind of Jewish exclusivism? But again, maybe there's another way of understanding this. Some have suggested that Jesus here calls her a dog in order to test her. It's as if he's playing devil's advocate to see what she's made of. He wants to find out what kind of Syrophoenician woman she is. What kind of Syrophoenician woman is he dealing with? Is she like the selfish and idolatrous Jezebel who is in everything just for herself? Or is she like that widow that Elijah helped who was humble and trusting and looked to God's mercy? Which is it? Which kind of woman is she? Others have even suggested that Jesus is not really serious. That when He calls her a dog, He must have done it with a twinkle in His eye or with a wink. That's what Elton Trueblood argues in his book, The Humor of Christ. Uh, that Jesus here is being... Playful. He calls her a dog in a playful sort of way, not a serious way. Certainly Jesus does have a good sense of humor, so that's possible. Whatever the case is, look at the woman's response. Her quick comeback. And put it in context. Put her response in context. Too. She's got one strike against her because she's a woman. And we know how women were viewed in that society. Strike two is the fact that she is a Greek from the region of Tyre and Sidon, a Syrophoenician. It seems the third strike has just been called when Jesus names her a dog, an unclean animal. But she's going to argue the call. She won't be pushed away so easily. It's like she says to Jesus, okay, so you're calling me a dog? We'll get ready for a dog fight. She gets inside the parable of Jesus and turns it around on Him. She answers and says, yes, Lord. Yes, I'm in agreement with you. Yes, Lord. But even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. 
she's witty, she's clever, and she's right. She makes here a pretty good point. I mean, anybody with a dog who hangs around the table at mealtime knows this is true. You know, kids tend to be kind of messy eaters and drop crumbs. And if you've got a dog, that dog gobbles them up. You might have to clean up the dog fur, but you're not going to have to clean up crumbs under the table. So let's make this a very practical sermon. Feeding your dog's table scraps is biblical. Okay? Don't say this sermon's not practical. All right? If you're not feeding your dog table scraps, you're, you're out of compliance with Jesus' way of, of uh, caring for dogs, right? Uh, actually, that's, that's not the main point here. Uh, I, I love the answer she gives to Jesus for several reasons here. She acknowledges who Jesus is. She calls him Lord. Maybe meant here as a, as a term, of, term of respect. Uh, but it's a term that certainly is associated with kingship. She's recognizing that Jesus has authority, that he is a ruler. More than that, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and she is a Greek, Lord is the term that's used for Yahweh, that special covenant name for God himself. She addresses Jesus as Lord. She's humble. She's humble. She's already fallen down on her feet before him, fallen down at his feet, fall down on her knees at his feet. Now she accepts her place. She agrees with Jesus that she is a dog. She knows she's unworthy and unclean, that she has no intrinsic claim on him. When she's called a dog, she doesn't get all offended. You know, she doesn't do the politically correct thing. She doesn't argue the point. She accepts that description. She accepts that lady. Her language and her posture reveal a humble heart. Who is this woman? This woman is no Jezebel. Indeed, she is much like that widow that Elijah helped. She is humble. She's humble, but she is also bold. We've got to notice this as well. Her boldness. Jesus seems to brush her off, but she doesn't give up. She persists in her request. She is tenacious in her faith. She grabs hold of Jesus and she won't let go until she gets the blessing she seeks. Oh, she understands the mission of Jesus. She knows the order of salvation history. She knows He has come first for the children of Israel. But she's not going to take no for an answer. So she presses her case with Jesus and she does so in a clever way. She knows the issue here is not her rights but Jesus' mercy. She doesn't try to bargain with Jesus. She simply throws herself on His mercy. She knows you can never have a right to mercy. She knows this is not about what she deserves or what she is owed. It's not as though she says to Jesus, give me what I deserve because of my goodness. Really what she's saying is give me what I don't deserve because of your goodness. She's pleading for mercy. She understands what mercy is, how mercy works. She grasps what grace is all about. She doesn't try to stand on her rights. She has no sense of entitlement. She simply throws herself on the grace and mercy of Jesus. In fact, I would say in doing this, she gets it. She gets what mercy is all about. She gets what Jesus is all about. When the children at the table don't. Don't miss this either because it's a warning for church members everywhere. There are the Jews, the children, 
the privileged people, the covenant people of God, sitting at the table with their nice place set and their clean, washed hands. And the bread of heaven is put on the table right in front of them. And because they are arrogant and presumptuous and pretentious, they don't get it. They're actually outsmarted by the family pet who gobbles up crumbs falling from the table and knows exactly what they are. She knows Jesus is the bread of life. She knows she has no merit to stand on. No claim she can make. She can't claim this healing. She can't demand it. She has, again, no sense of entitlement. And yet, when Jesus doesn't answer right away, when He seems to brush her off, she doesn't go away hopeless or despondent or in despair. Why? We don't know what she knew about Jesus, but she knew enough. She knew enough to know He is good and He is merciful. And so she appeals to that mercy. She counts on that goodness. And indeed, Jesus does show her His goodness and His mercy. In a way, you could say Jesus loses this argument. I mean, every other argument Jesus gets into, He gets into arguments with the scribes and with the Pharisees and with the Sadducees. He always demolishes His opponents in debate. But here there's a sense in which He loses the argument. He loses in debate to this woman. Now, I think he allowed himself to lose again. I think he was testing her faith, testing to see what kind of woman she is by what he said. But he certainly approved of the way she responded. Verse 29, Jesus says, For this saying, in other words, because what you've said demonstrates true faith in my grace, because it shows you're not proud, but humble, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And Mark tells us how the story concludes, the happy ending. The woman goes home and she finds the demon has indeed gone out and her daughter is lying on the bed. I think it's so interesting. How does Jesus speak here? He says, the demon has gone out of your dog? <laughs> no. The, woman, the demon has gone out of your daughter. After the woman shows faith, Jesus refers to her little girl not as a little dog anymore, but as a daughter. That is to say, she's going to get her place at the table. She too will be a child of God. I think that change in Jesus' language from dog to daughter points to a coming change in status, anticipating what is to come when the Gentile dogs will be welcomed as children to the kingdom table. Now there you have this story. I think this is uh, it's a beautiful story of grace. Beautiful story of grace. Don't miss the grace here that is on display. But in addition to being a beautiful story of grace, I think this story teaches us a number of other things. And if you'll bear with me for a few more minutes, I want to point a few of these out. What else do we see here? I think this woman teaches us about prayer. What it means to pray in faith. This woman models prayer for us. See, prayer is the primary way we acknowledge who God is as the sovereign ruler and redeemer. And it's also how we acknowledge who we are as dependent, helpless creatures. This woman prays. She, 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 she pleads. She begs. 
And in the end, her prayers are answered. She gets what she has prayed for because she perseveres in prayer. Even after an apparent refusal, she pushes on. Verse 26 says she kept on asking. Literally, she continued begging. Even after Jesus brushes her off, she restates her case. She argues her case. I want to ask you, how many blessings How many blessings have we missed out on because we gave up and quit praying for something when God did not answer right away? How many blessings have you missed out on because you didn't keep praying? How many blessings have I missed out on because I I, I didn't pray persistently? This woman shows us how to pray with perseverance. She teaches us to not misinterpret God's slowness. It is true. God is willing to answer our prayers, but it would not always be in our best interest for God to grant what we ask right away. Your faith actually grows. Your faith is strengthened when you have to argue your case with God repeatedly. Now, sometimes when you go to argue your case with God in prayer, you find you really don't have a very good case and you're really not praying for the right thing. Sometimes this can can expose the folly of what we're praying for. But other times, as you pray persistently, and as you argue your case with God in prayer, your faith grows. When you pray persistently and vigorously, taking your needs and and the needs of the church and the needs of the kingdom before God in prayer. When we pray that God would roll back the darkness, that He would free places around us of, of what seems to be even demonic oppression, God doesn't answer right away. It doesn't mean God's not willing. It simply means we need to keep praying. Second, I think all these stories about bread in Mark's Gospel teach us something about the Eucharist. All these references to bread in Mark's Gospel teach us about the Lord's Supper. Indeed, it's interesting to me, the words of this woman have strongly influenced the church's Eucharistic liturgy down through the centuries. So in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, you find this prayer... Uh, referred to as the prayer of humble access. The first part of it will sound very familiar because we use it, but let me read the whole thing to you. This is how the prayer goes. We do not presume to come to this Your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in Your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under Your table, but You are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. I think what this woman does, you can see how her language has influenced Thomas Cranmer's prayer of approach, the prayer of humble access. I think what this woman shows us is how we ought to approach the Lord's table. This is how we have to draw near to God at His table. We come with confidence. This woman is, is bold in how she comes. We come with boldness. We come with confidence. But it's not misplaced confidence. It's not confidence in ourselves or in our own righteousness or in our heritage. It's confidence in God's great mercy. It's confidence in the grace of the Lord Jesus. We come with hearts that are assured but not presumptuous. We come like this woman, humble but bold. We come because we know this feast is a gift of grace. It is indeed the bread of life, the bread of heaven given freely to all who will come. All who will come trusting in Christ, banking on His mercy. 
That's how this woman approaches Jesus for bread. It's how we ought to approach Jesus for the bread of life as well. And finally, mission. I think this story ends up not contradicting, but complementing the previous story about Jesus coming to cleanse the world. I think you have some of those tension points because really Jesus is still operating under the law. The law is still in effect, but he's also doing things that point to the new age that is about to go into effect through his death and resurrection and the outpouring of his spirit and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. All those things packaged together. There's going to be a new covenant, a new world order. And while Jesus is living under the old, he's pointing to the new. See, the previous story showed us how Jesus has come to cleanse the world. He's going to open his kingdom up to non-Jews. Here we have a story in which he actually does that. And we see that all who come to him, trusting in his mercy, are welcome to come and take their place in his kingdom at the table, joining the feast. See, in essence, Jesus says here, yes, there is a barrier between Jew and Gentile. But let me show you what I'm going to do to that barrier. And he begins to take a battering ram and bash that barrier down to show he's going to form one new humanity out of Jew and Gentile. And it's interesting the role that Gentiles play in Mark's Gospel. Here you find a Gentile woman who has a faith and therefore an understanding that excels that of even the disciples. The disciples are getting the inside track the inside explanation from Jesus about the parables. This woman's an outsider in a Gentile region, but she gets what they don't. And indeed, when we come to the end of Mark's Gospel, the very first person in Mark's Gospel, the first human being to confess that Jesus truly is the Son of God, is not a Jew, it's not a disciple, but it's the Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross watching how Jesus died. And he says, surely this man must be the Son of God. See, this Syrophoenician woman, that Roman centurion, these Gentiles anticipate what is to come. They point ahead to the mission of the church. Jesus here shares His bread with a woman who is an outsider in every way. Our calling as the church, our mission as the church, is to go to the nations, it's to go to the outsiders, and it's it's to invite them to come and feast on the true bread, the bread of life at Jesus' table. And so we're to call people of different races and ethnicities and skin colors because God shows no partiality. God loves all without distinction. We call people who have sinned, sinned in all kinds of grievous ways. We invite idolaters and adulterers and fornicators and gays and the wrongfully divorced. We invite the drug dealers and the tax evaders. We invite the Muslims and the Mormons and the atheists. We invite any and all who know they are weary and in need of rest. Any and all who will admit, yes, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Yes, I am dirty in need of washing and cleansing. The thing is, we're all sinners ourselves. And just a moment's reflection ought to tell you, you know, if God has accepted me into His kingdom, there's no reason why He wouldn't accept anybody else. There are things that go on in each one of our heads and hearts that would make the executives at HBO block. They would say, we can't put that on TV. Things going on inside our minds and hearts every day. 
that are filthy, wicked, crooked, depraved. But we know Jesus is at work in us. Jesus has saved us. He has rescued us. He has washed us. He invites us now to feast at His table on the bread of heaven. And if you and I have been invited, there is no reason why other sinners of every type and stripe can't be invited as well. It's our job to go out into the highways and byways of the world and call them in. To call the sinners of the world to come and find cleansing in Jesus. To call the dogs of the world to come and feast as children at His table. See, this woman shows us our salvation is by grace from beginning to end. We're forgiven by grace. We're transformed by grace. We're healed by grace. We're fed by grace. We're freed by grace. We're adopted by grace. We're remade from dogs into children by grace. And because it's by grace, everyone is invited. There are no prerequisites, no qualifications you have to meet. You just have to hunger. That's the only qualification. To hunger for the bread of life. You hunger for the bread of heaven. All you have to do is ask. And Jesus is here. Hunger for the bread of heaven and Jesus will fill. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for such a great salvation through Christ Jesus. We thank You for all this woman teaches us about faith, about prayer, about the Lord's Supper even, about our mission as a church especially. We thank You for the way she teaches us about grace about Your mercy. You are indeed the God whose property it is always to have mercy. So have mercy upon us, sinners. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let's stand together for prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that You are the giver of every good gift. And we praise You for Your faithfulness and Your provision of everything that we need for life and godliness. Have mercy on us because we are poor and needy. Help us to pray because we are fallen and flawed. Help us to draw near to Your throne with confidence because Your Son has died for us and Your Spirit is working in us. Gracious God, we intercede on behalf of Your church that You have redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Sanctify us that we might truly be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Consecrate us as a pure and spotless bride for your Son through the means of grace and the work of your Spirit. We pray especially for your blessings to be upon the congregations of your people here in Cahaba Heights and in the city of Birmingham. We lift up to you St. Peter's Anglican, St. Stephen's Episcopal, Cahaba Heights Baptist, Mountain Brook Community Church, Cahaba Heights Methodist, Cahaba Park Presbyterian, Philadelphia Baptist, and Brookwood Baptist, Baptist. Lord, reform us where we are in error, strengthen us where we are weak, and reunite us where we are divided. Sovereign Lord, You are the Maker of the ends of the earth, and we call on You to bless all peoples and make Your salvation known to all nations. We pray that You would raise up faithful servants to proclaim the good news of the Gospel at home and in distant lands. We ask You to strengthen the faith of those who are oppressed and afflicted, especially Your people in Iraq and Syria and in the Ukraine. Lord, overthrow Your enemies with Your Gospel. Slay them with the breath of Your mouth. 
and grant that they would submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Preserve our own nation in righteousness and true honor. Forgive us of when we have strayed from your will and grant us repentance to turn from our sin. We pray for our president and all magistrates, judges, and officials whom you have granted authority. Give them wisdom to walk in the fear of the Lord and establish justice and righteousness in our land. Lord, we ask for your blessing on our community and on the city of Birmingham. We especially pray for Vestavia Hills Mayor Butch Zaragoza, for Birmingham Mayor William Bell, for all of our local city councils, for our Jefferson County Commissioners George Bowman, Sandra Brown, Jimmy Stevens, Joe Knight, David Carrington. Lord, we pray also for our Birmingham Police Chief A.C. Roper and for our Jefferson County Sheriff Mike Hale. We also lift up to you our Alabama Legislature and Governor Bentley. Lord, we pray that you would bless all those who contribute to the good of our city, especially law enforcement officers, fire and rescue workers, medical personnel, uh, employers and businesses that provide good work and good wages. We ask for your uh, blessing on our schools and universities that sound learning and the fear of the Lord would be promoted. Especially bless Heritage Academy and all homeschooling families, Grace Community School, and the Trinity House Institute. We pray for those who work in prisons and those who are in prison, that the guilty would be brought to repentance and amendment of life according to your will, that all who are held unjustly would be released. Lord, we ask for an end to the corruption and division that plagues our city, that all hatred and strife would cease, and that the Prince of Peace would reign in this city. God of all comfort, we bring before you all who are afflicted and oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or any other trouble of body or mind. Bless and watch over Ashley Hamblin, Kia Shoku, Kia's mom and Aunt Lena, Steve and Heather Dornan, Michelle Stevenson, Bethany Laughlin, Mary Margaret Talley, and Neil Evans' uh, Uncle Bill, Pastor Tom Clark, and all those who have been affected and lost loved ones in the Ebola outbreak. Lord, be with all those and have mercy on all those who are ensnared by sin and addiction. Comfort and strengthen all expectant mothers. Bless our aging parents and grandparents and those who care for them. Lord, grant to all the consolations of which they have need and overrule our present sufferings to our eternal good. And now hear us as we pray the prayer that our Savior has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs>